0: Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. I'll be more or less wrapping up this series. This is part five of the unassembled life of faith. But really, as I have mentioned the, the Word of God, and particularly and what I'm thinking about is the epistles and the New Testament, so much of it has to do with our day-to-day life as believers that we never really get away from it. So the series title is a little bit of a cheat because so much of what the Word tells us is about our life as believers when we are not assembled together. Um, but I do want to look at a couple of passages today that I think really do crystallize or should Crystallize our worldview and help us prioritize the things that will, as Peter wrote as we looked at a couple of weeks ago secure for us an abundant entrance into eternity now let's start right away by looking at 2nd Timothy chapter 3 beginning in verse 1 2nd Timothy 3 beginning in verse 1 uh, Paul writes but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come And from such people turn away. Now, this phrase, having a form of godliness but denying its power, is one of our favorites. We often use that in this church and in this circle—a uh, circle of churches like this—to talk about churches or denominations or believers who believe in God, confess Christ as Savior, but argue against the Holy Spirit and his gifts, saying that, yeah, whatever he did in the past, that was just for the establishment of the church. Uh, Healings, miracles, signs, wonders, gifts, those are not for today. And we say, well, you have a form of godliness, meaning you still go to church, you still sing the hymns, but you're denying the power of God. And all that is true. And we are right to emphasize the importance and embrace the gifts of the Spirit. But that's not what he's talking about here. If you look at the context, what Paul is opposing here is the idea, quite common today sadly, that I can be saved but unchanged. Yes, I believe that Jesus is the Lord and I trust him to save me from hell, but I can't change who I am. I'll never deny the Lord Jesus, but unless you ask me, you'll never know I'm a Christian. That's just the way I am. And a couple of things. Once again, we can do a whole series based on just these evil qualities. You know, When Paul says perilous times will come because men are going to be like this, 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 and this, we could do a series on that, on those things, and say, yeah, see, here's why. And we really could, and we, and we probably will do something like that. I'm not saying we'll do a whole message on disobedient to parents, one whole message on slandering and stuff, but we can talk about these things. But... For our purposes today, I want to zero in on just a couple of them. And I want you to remember the word that God brought through Pastor Mike today because he was saying, listen, sometimes you hear a word, and if you're not really paying attention, you're saying, well, all he's saying is praise the Lord. We're right in the middle of praising the Lord. What do we have to have a word about praising the Lord? But did you hear what the word was? Habitually, characteristically, be found praising him, and at least three times this word, thanking him, thanking him, thanking him. And right here in the middle of this list, unthankful. Perilous times are marked by unthankful believers. When something scary happens, if there's an accident or emergency, let's think about this. Uh, I don't know if anybody's ever experienced this. I remember we had a a young lady back in youth group years ago share about a mission trip she went on where where the plane crashed. She survived. Uh, In fact, I think everybody survived it, but it was pretty scary. But what if you're in an in-flight emergency, bird strike, solely uh, on the Hudson? Remember, remember that story. Uh, He safely lands this plane, but it was scary. The engines were out. He had to find a place to safely land this airliner full of people. And he does. And everybody is rescued. And then you can look back when 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 the immediate danger is over and say, thank God, supernatural intervention. You know there were people on that plane praying. There might have been a handful of people who saw it happening who were praying for them. And then we can say, thank you, Lord, for rescuing us from that danger. But what about the thousands of flights that take place every day with zero incident at all? We can read these horrifying statistics about how many people die, something on the order of 50,000 people a year in the United States in automobile accidents. And you drive back and forth to work hundreds of times a year without incident, Do you thank God for that? Because you should. Thank God for those normal days when nothing, big air quotes there, when nothing happens, can we, should we, be actively thankful for those? I think absolutely we can and should. I've spoken often Uh, as most of you know, of my my daily healing confession, the things I speak over myself. It's near and dear to my heart and how important it is to say these things daily. But we should likewise be thanking him for protection, for provision, for all the things that go into a normal day. Because we have to remember uh, our trust is not in the things of this world. And right in the middle of all this, even in the good times, when things are manifestly good, we've got an enemy who is actively trying to steal from us to kill us and to destroy us so I contend that on those days when nothing bad happens uh, something is still happening there's still a spiritual battle going on and we have angels on our side right so we should actively pray and thank him for daily protection preservation and provision when, I, when we talk, and we mentioned this uh, just a week or two ago, when, when we read, to pray without ceasing, uh, and we know, we gotta sleep, we gotta eat, we gotta talk about other stuff, when it says pray without ceasing, don't stop praying, don't get out of the habit, don't give up on praying. Never let your lifestyle be, let prayer be absent from your lifestyle. And If you're in the habit of praying, you have to remember that a crucial component of our prayers is thanksgiving. You know, every week, our email update includes reminders to pray for certain individuals in our church who have been fighting long-term battles. I don't want a show of hands. I just want you to answer this to yourself. Do you pray for them when you read that email? And let's just say, let's commit right now to doing that. When you get that email, when you read it, you pray for those that we've asked you to pray for. Let's do that every week in our small groups. How long do we do that? Until when? Until we see the manifestation of what we've been praying for. Or until Jesus comes back. We know what his will is, we continue to pray his will, and we continue to expect to see those prayers answered. It might seem like a long time, but when we see those individuals walking in the wholeness and healing God provided for them through the finished work of the cross, it won't look like a long time on the other side of it. We'll all rejoice when we see those things, won't we? Yeah. And do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If you were fighting this battle, this long battle Wouldn't you love to know that people are committed to fighting this battle with you, no matter how long this battle takes? Yeah, I was praying for you for three years there, brother, but I got tired. Good luck. You don't want to hear that. And whether you hear it or not, we want people to know we are still praying for them and with them. Well, He mentions unthankful. We talked about that. He also, he also mentions unholy. And this goes hand in hand with denying the power of godliness. Having a form of godliness and denying its power. Remember, this whole enterprise rests on the proposition that Christ did not come to simply model a behavior for us to emulate. His finished work means that we can be made new. There is part of the definition of holiness is otherness. I heard uh, Chip Ingram say this week on on the program, he is not, God is not a bigger, better version of us. He is something else. And he's made us to be something else. Let's move on here, because I got a lot of stuff to cover. That doesn't mean it's a long sermon, but there's a lot of stuff to cover. 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now Paul is writing to his protege who has taken on a lot of the oversight of the churches that Paul has planted. And he's writing here in chapter 4, verse 1. I charge you, therefore, be, uh, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears. They will heap up for them, for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race I have kept the faith finally there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge will give to me on that day and not only and not to me only but also to all who have loved his appearing this moving passage is why second timothy is often referred to as Paul's swan song his valedictory, his last word, his passing the baton, as it were, to Timothy. Now, this passage is easier to preach to a room full of Bible school students or those who are embarking or training for occupational ministry. But what have we nailed down, or I hope we have nailed down, over the last year or so? Every believer is a minister, Right? There are people that you have influence over that I can't touch, that I can't begin to reach. The job of the pastor, the teacher, etc., is to be used by God to equip you for the work of the ministry. But the thrust of this passage, explicitly stated twice, is the second coming of Christ. We will stand before him to be judged for our work as his minister's. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this rich passage today. I just want to point out a couple of obvious things. As we commit ourselves to his kingdom and the preaching of his word, it'll often seem like an uphill battle. This is what he's saying. This is not going to get easier, Timothy, but you have to continue preaching the word, in season and out of season. We will encounter a world that is less and less receptive to our message. But don't give up, because the seed is still good seed, and there is still good soil. Look, ask people who studied geology, the geology of of the earth from age to age, and they'll tell you that at different places that are deserts today weren't always deserts. They were once rich, fertile ground. And places that are rich, fertile ground. Look at Israel. Israel has been transformed. It's, it's, a lot of it has been done uh, by the grace of God, but through the work of men has been transformed. This, uh, thousands of, mile, of square miles of desert has been transformed into rich, fertile land. And while it might look like America is becoming a dry place, where the water of the word is in short supply. It's not really in short supply, it's just not being absorbed by the ground, spiritually speaking. Because we're seeing what we're seeing manifest these, these qualities that, that Paul warned Timothy about lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, lovers of self. While, while we see this sadly happening in America, uh, Iran, of all places, is experiencing unprecedented growth. In terms of people coming to Christ. That's the hottest spot right now for growth in the kingdom of God. And we still see millions coming to Christ almost almost exclusively through full gospel ministries and missions uh, in South America, uh, certainly still in China. There is always good ground. There is good soil. Once, what was once stony ground is now fertile. But what's the sower's job? to go and hunt just for the good soil, to sow the word. The sower sows the word. And many of those seeds will fall on places where they won't take root, or they're choked out, or they're snatched up by the birds. But there is still soil out there. There are still humble, hungry, and candid people who really are searching for the truth. And if we continue to sow the word, they will receive that seed readily. They'll respond to it, even here. What I said about America doesn't mean it's completely dried up. There's still fertile soil in your sphere of influence. Don't stop doing the work of an evangelist. If you stay committed, stay engaged, you will be among those people who love his appearing. This is a great time of year to talk about that. We can celebrate his first appearance as we prepare to welcome him back. But that's what I mean. Be found doing that work when he comes back. Because there's a big difference between these two things. They're both legitimate. They're just a big difference. One says, I'm so thankful that when I die, I'm not going to hell. And the other is, I can't wait until he comes back. It's one thing to be prepared in the sense that I've got eternity covered. Uh, I got saved. And it's another to say, I love him so much I can't wait to see him. Will you love his appearing? You won't. If, you are, if your pursuits, I'm not saying you have to deny God. I'm just saying if your pursuits are self-centered, then when he shows up, it's going to be, Ew, wasn't quite ready for that. But if we are found with our hand on the plow, doing the things he's called us to do, we are going to be so, it's like getting caught doing something good. So much more to say about that, but I want to get into this in 1 Peter. You can uh, open your Bibles or look as we read 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. This is a very familiar passage, but let's listen to it and read it closely. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Who once were not a people, but are now the people of God. Who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Now again, look at the emphasis on how we are not, we've not just accepted salvation, but we have taken on a new identity. This is not just something you believe. This is not just something you receive. This is something you have become. What have we become? His special people. God's own special people. And how do his own special people act? How do we behave? What do we do? We proclaim his praises. It says that's what he saved us for. And we see ourselves as sojourners and pilgrims. We don't really belong here. We are citizens of a higher kingdom here on assignment. And as long as we are here, verse 11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. This to me is one of the most significant passages in the whole Bible. And before I comment on it, I want to begin and then I'll begin to wrap this up. Turn ahead one chapter to first Peter chapter three, beginning in verse thirteen. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed, For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. I wanted to include uh, verse 15 especially because it specifies one of the ways that we keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Which in this case, as in many others, when we read that word in the New Testament, he's talking about unbelievers. He's not talking about non-Jews. Saying that the the new Jew, the, the true Israel of God, is the church and the Gentiles are those outside the church, those who do not yet believe. Now, so goes back, go back and look at that again. Keep your behavior, keep your conduct excellent, honorable among the Gentiles. Why? So that when they speak against you of evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. This, is, this verse really does lay a heavy burden on us. It does tell us specifically in 1 Peter uh, uh, 3.15 that be ready to give an answer. A defense to everyone who asks you. I've always referred to that. That's the apologist's favorite verse, by the way, that defense. The word apologia, this making a case for what you believe. But that's what it's saying. But but I've always considered this the bare minimum of what every believer is required to do in terms of uh, their witness. You need to be able to tell anybody that asks you what you believe and why you believe it. That sounds simple, but many people can't. They say, what do you believe? Well, I'm saved. What does that mean? Well, I'm born again. What does that mean? I've accepted Christ. What does that mean? And then maybe you can spit it out. Say, well, I believe that he died on the cross for me so that my sins could be forgiven. Okay. But why do you believe that? We need to be able to tell people. Not just tell them what we believe, but a defense, an apologia, an apologetic. That's the bare minimum. Why do I call it the bare minimum? Because it only includes those who ask. You go back to chapter 2, when it talks about keeping your behavior honorable, excellent among the unbelievers. And then what happens as a result? That they, on account of your behavior that they observe. Now, 1 Peter 3.15 talks about what you say, Uh, The the passage in 2 Peter talks about how we live. And it's saying this, uh, that they will glorify God in the day of visitation. I've said this before. This is one of my favorite passages, and many of you have heard me preach on it. But it absolutely is a great place to wind up as we talk about this unassembled life of, of faith. The day of visitation is not the second coming of Jesus Christ. Because if they haven't come to Christ on the day, uh, uh, by the time of his return, uh, there's nothing about the unsaved, uh, remaining unsaved, that's, that's necessarily going to glorify Christ. It's talking about, I believe this day of visitation is talking about when they finally absorb and understand the gospel. And that when they genuinely have a choice. Let me back up here a little bit. I've shared this with you before. I I, I, even the first time I shared it, I don't remember the exact number. But I heard a fascinating message on how many times you have to hear something before you truly understand it. And the gospel, it was like, and I don't know how they came up with this figures, but figure. But he, the guy who was talking about it, I was listening to it on a drive. I couldn't take notes. Was, was making a very good case about how it's like oh, 28 times, 38 times you have to hear the gospel before it clicks. And so anytime you share the gospel, you could be anywhere in that link, that, this chain. Uh, you, you might not, statistically, you're probably not going to be the one who tells them the one time they understand and you're going to get to pray with them. But you might be that link in a chain that has been laid by, by 37 people before you or 27, well, then, never mind the number. The point is, at no time when you share the gospel is that wasted. No matter how they respond in that moment, they are going to hear the gospel. And at some point, it's going to sink in, and they're going to say, Oh, this is not really a matter at this point of whether I logically believe it. I now see the truth. The question is, am I going to follow it? Am I going to embrace this? Am I going to decide for Christ or against him? And according to this passage... What is going to influence them to either reject or embrace that truth is how they have seen you live. You sow that seed and you water it with prayer. And you also water it with your lifestyle. You remember what Pastor Bob said about our prayers outliving us? That we can pray for people to come to the light. For workers to, to cross their paths. And those prayers live on. If, if we pass before we see this person come to Christ. Those prayers have still been prayed. And God is still bringing people across their paths. Uh, I've shared this at least twice from the pulpit. Uh, and uh, you know, John Williford just loves this story about Dwight Moody, how he carried a list of a 100 unsaved people around with him that he prayed for regularly. He prayed for their salvation. And by the time he died, 96 of them had come to Christ, and the last four received Christ at his funeral. Now, this was over the course of decades that he prayed for these people. But you don't stop praying. Pray without ceasing. He never gave up on any of them. I'm going to tell you a couple of stories. And then I'll close. Three stories, actually. I have told you, it's been a long time since I shared my full testimony. Might be worth doing again someday. It's not as quite as interesting as, as dad's. Uh, partly because I was only 12 when I got saved. Didn't have as as much history. But, I'll tell you this, uh, I was, at the time of my salvation, and uh, sadly, for many years after that, a Christian who could be described as having uh, a lot of zeal with little knowledge. I had an eagerness to share the gospel, but very, very little command of scripture and how they fit together that eagerness was had nothing to do with legalism though it was born out of my own relief of knowing that i no longer had to worry about going to hell that at that age after years of worrying about what happened to me when i died as i'm still a kid you understand but i was a kid who believed in the bible i believed in the, in heaven and hell and i knew that no matter what happened i was either going to go to heaven or hell And it tortured me not knowing. And when my mom finally broke through that, she was number 38, I guess, uh, who made me understand that it was that prayer that I had been encouraged to pray a number of times, that that was the link. That when I did that and prayed that from the heart and received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, that was a done deal. And because it was so important to me, it was hard for me to imagine that it wasn't important to everybody else. But even if it wasn't important to them, my friends I'm talking about, it was still important to me. Because the next worst thing than having to worry about me going to hell was having to worry about my friends going to hell. And I was so passionate about that that I couldn't live with myself if I didn't share Christ with my friends. Now again, I didn't do it very skillfully. And I had no idea about discipleship. I just wanted them to pray the prayer that I prayed so I didn't have to worry about them going to hell. So right off the bat, I'm alienating some of my friends two best friends who were brothers here in in St. Joe, I shared with them, and and they brought it up over the dinner table in front of me. Hey, Scott says we need to do this. Do we really need to do this? And right there, uh, their mom says, no, that's what confirmation was for. Well, that's really not what confirmation is for. I was confirmed too. And we went round and round. Well, a best friend of mine, my best friend in childhood, uh, about that time moved away for, not, not, out of state, but out of town, so we didn't see much of each other. Shortly thereafter, our family moves to Broken Arrow so Dad can go to Bible school. And I wrote this, this kid a long letter urging him to accept Christ in my stumbling, uh, ungraceful way. And a week or so after I mailed this letter, I get a phone call from him. Phone calls were expensive back then. They were a rare treat. We had to get specific permission to make long-distance phone calls, and they better be five minutes or less. But this guy called me, and uh, very acid tone said, I got your letter, Reverend Millis. I'm like, oh, clearly he didn't like it. But he, was, he seemed more annoyed as we talked. He goes, remember, we talked about that already. I said, well, I know we must have talked about it. I just didn't know if you ever. Yeah, yeah, I did, I did. Like, okay, clearly you didn't, but whatever. You say you did, and I'll sleep, sleep better at night. And uh, we continued to exchange letters, probably for a year or so, and then just kind of lost touch. And years later... I couldn't tell you how many, a handful of years later, after we had moved back to Illinois, graduated high school, I get a phone call from him again. And he says very cautiously, Hey man, I know we haven't talked in a long time, but are you still into that Jesus stuff? I said, Yeah, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm into it more than ever. He said, That's so good to hear because so am I. I had a real encounter with Christ in college and this is what I'm doing now. And it's like, Oh my goodness. This is a seed that was planted years before, and thank God I had something to do with this guy coming to Christ and wouldn 't it have been something for him to have been fired up for Jesus and find out that I had abandoned Christ I also this is the short this is a short one before I get into my final one I mentioned last week about the these uh, These guys out at uh, Fort Ord, California, that I'd got to hang out with shortly after I uh, became a second lieutenant. And there was a lot of sitting around, a lot of talking. And I mentioned how this uh, RTO, this radio telephone operator, this corporal, had asked me if I was religious. Do you remember this story? He said, Are you religious? I said, No, I'm not religious, but I, I do, yeah, I'm a Christian. I take that seriously. Why did you ask? And he said, Because. I haven't heard you cuss since we've been out here in the field. That was the only indicator. I wasn't preaching, wasn't doing anything overtly Christian, but I didn't sound like the rest of them. But it opened the door for conversation, and I had several conversations with him, and, mo- and mostly with him and the platoon sergeant, somewhat less with the platoon leader, but they were good conversations. There were good challenges, good questions, uh, and, and you know, even though there was a little bit of jabs and stuff in there, uh, it, was, it was mostly respectful, fruitful conversation, but... For all I know, I don't want to use the word inconsequential, but it may have been. All I can tell you is, after talking to those guys for the better part of two weeks, I know that I never got the privilege of praying with them, never got to lead them in the salvation prayer, and completely lost touch with them afterward. I have no, to this day, I have no idea what happened to any of them. But I do know one thing. They heard the gospel. This last one's a little tougher. I met a friend shortly after high school. He was still in high school, but this was while I was still working at good old St. Joe IGA, where Canfield and I blazed a path to glory by leading the entire uh, bagger crew and most of the cashiers to Christ over the, over the course of a few months. That's not g- glory to God, right? Not, not, uh, not our glory. Uh but this guy was a different, different breed. He was a super smart kid, but really quiet. He wasn't pretentious. Uh, he was just smart. And he was an atheist. And he would poke fun at me for, for my beliefs, often. But it was just that. It was fun. It was good-natured ribbing. He had great respect for me and for my beliefs. He just didn't share them. He even came to church to hear me preach on one occasion when when Dad was kind enough to uh, open the pulpit. And uh, he thanked me sincerely when I would tell him that I was praying for him. We drifted in and out of each other's lives. He joined the Army and was gone for a while, came back. We lost touch again when I moved to Alabama and got back in touch for a while when we moved back to St. Joe. And somewhere along the way, lost touch again. He'd move away, come back, and sometimes he'd look me up. We'd go for walks. We'd, we'd, we'd hang out and talk. And uh, every time we talked, we would, I would you know didn't really have to shoehorn. He knew what I wanted to talk about, but, but uh, we would end up talking about Christ. A uh, handful of years ago, I learned, sadly, that he had been arrested. And he'd been arrested for the kind of crime that ruins a man's life. I'll just leave it at that. It was an embarrassing thing to find out. And I never heard from him directly. This is literally the way it went down. One day, someone alerted me to a blurb in the newspaper about his arrest. The next day, I, I was reading how he had been released on house arrest while awaiting trial or appearance before a grand jury or something and had put a bullet through his head. The end. And I'll be honest with you, the news of my friend's suicide hit me harder in some ways than the death of my own father years later. Not because I loved this guy more than my father or was closer to him, just simply because I had the blessed assurance that my father had gone to be with Jesus, as I will one day. I did not have that assurance concerning my friend. but I know this. He heard the gospel. I can cling to two things. The hopeful possibility that he cried out to Jesus even as he gave up on this life. And at least the clear conscience that I have concerning my witness during our conversations over the years. That's small comfort, and it's awfully crass to think it, but if he's in hell, it's not my fault. You do not want to be haunted by dreams or imaginations of friends and acquaintances crying out, Why? Why didn't you tell me? How could you know something so important and not share it with me? And I'm sorry if this sounds like a downer. Sorry if it feels like we're ending this message on a downer. That's really not my intention. But this is serious business. I'm word of faith through and through. But the word of faith is not primarily for us to enjoy a life of health, wealth, and safety. The manifestations of God's abundant healing, provision, and protection have always been and are ultimately for our equipment in soldiering on in the completion of the Great Commission. Praise and worship team, you can be making your way up here. As we move toward the celebration of Christmas, we will, over the next few weeks, be looking, as we almost always do, uh, at some people who are actively looking for the Messiah and how they were different from their contemporaries. We should be likewise actively anticipating his return and that anticipation should make a difference between us and those who are lost, blind, dying. We alone, not we alone in this room, but we alone as believers, have been entrusted with the only message that will save them. God help us to do it and God forgive us for every opportunity we squander. What is that message? Here it is. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There is no way we can improve ourselves or the human condition at large to a degree that even comes close to making us fit for heaven. We Need a Savior. God the Father provided that Savior when God the Son took on flesh and entered this sinful world. Took that sin on himself, carried it to the cross, and left it nailed there with a declaration saying, it is finished. All that's left for every lost, blind, and dying individual is to hear it, believe it, And confess it. They will not confess if they don't believe. They won't believe if they don't hear. And they won't hear without a preacher. But. They won't hear a preacher. Who does not live a life consistent with his preaching. Live the gospel. And preach the gospel. Stand up with me.